Hello and bye welcome by Tunes Live, saam met my Jean Marais. Tunes Live is een reeks geselserige programma wat ek vervaardig deur om met plaaslike musici en plaaslike muziekindustrie rolspelers te gesels. Dit spruit voort vanuit Tunes Studio. Tunes Studio is een rehearsal en een recording studio in Stellenbosch. Ons bied muziekondersteuningsdienste soos die verhiering van rehearsal space, recordings, live sound, retail van muziekproducten sowel as bekomstighede, sowel as muzieklesse wat binnenkant die Paul Bathner tak in Stellenbosch aangebied word in uh, Merriman Avenue. En dit is die skoolkiese naam is Notes Music School, daar word drums, gitaar, bassgitaar en klavierlesse aangebied. Vandaag op die show gesels ons met Greg Smith, so dit is een Engelse onderhoud, alhoewel Greg is baie vaardig in Afrikaans ook. Greg is een man met vele stories en hy is liefde gesels, so jy gaan hierdie geniet as jy hou van conversations, wel ek hoop jy hou van conversations, want anders te verstaan ek jy hoe kom jy hier nou luister nie. Sê te loops gepraat van uh, mense wat nou goed uh, luister wat hulle nie van hou nie, um, dit is interessant, ek het commentaar gekry op... Um, verlede keer sy episode van Louis Averbach, wat die ou vir my gesê het, die, die langlijst verskonings in die intro, oor hoekom, hoekom tunes live so sporadies is, is onnodig. Dit is vir my vreselik interessant, want uh, niemand het om natuurlijk gedwong om aan te luister nie. So, uh, wat ek net daardoor wil sê, is as jy vind my intro of my outro is vervelig, skip dit eenvoudig, daar is een forward knop hier, het <laughs> is baie eenvoudig, maar... Um, Het sal ek lekker wees as jylle luister daarna, want soms plak gigs in die intro en uh, die outro is een bykie van een samenvatting. Praat van gigs, um, daar is een paar goeders wat opkom. Uh, die derde augustus speelt Jack Hammer in Ellingtons. Um, ek noem het, want hulle is een touringband van Gauteng, as jy in Durbanville, Belville area bly gaan check it uit. Great, great, legendary South African rock band. Dan die 9e augustus is The Gambles, a band waarvoor ek ook speel, uh, saam met Dean Cachet en Kent Farmer en Mark Ellis, wat al drie al op die program was, is ons by die Thirsty Oyster. Um, ja, wat is al nog? Kom ons dink, gigs in augustus, ek weet van een baie mal show, Wisdom of Movement, Jorik Pinar, wat ook al op die show was, Stoker en Aiden Martin, of het perform by Mercury Live, ek dink die is op die 23ste augustus, dis lekker stuff om uit te check. Um, ja, Greg, terug na Greg toe, um, hy vertel vir ons baie interessante techniques en tips oor hard playing en oor percussion playing, en deel sommer net lekker stories van sy verlede, dit is ongelooflik om na Greg te luister uit, hy praat uit sy hart uit, hy vertel uit een vreselike lekker manier om stories te verpak, en story, hy, hy trek jou in die story, en hy skets vir jou die, die buitenlijne, hy skets vir jou die hele, die hele beeld van die story, so ek het niks veel meer verder om te sê nie, kom ons luister na a conversation met die harp and percussion player van die band Boulevard Blues. Sy naam is Greg Smith. You can't judge a book by just looking at that cover, baby. Sorry. 
Yes, that is the vibe. So, like, interesting story to start with. Um, we connected uh, very uh, on a very interesting note. Yes, we did. Uh, with the Cajon, and I want to speak a little bit about the, you have some interesting facts about the Cajon's history. Mm. So, it was at Pete Buta's uh, send off, the, yeah, the, the, late, the late Pete Buta. Um, so, so there was a jam session and I, I left my cajon on the stage and there was a few oaks jamming. And then uh, when I got the cajon back, there was a dent and a crack in the cajon. <laughs> but what oh, was, you should be a dentist. But, <laughs> but what was funny is that you told me, before I see, saw the dent in the Ooh. cajon, you told me about this great technique, which I haven't practiced yet because I haven't had time to, to jam with the cajon. But I'm still going to apply it. I like, I really like the vibe of the hill yeah. going side sideways like yeah. that. Um, and then you told me about this hill technique where you kick the cajon with the side of your hill. That's right. As you turn your foot kind of uh, 90 degrees almost and then you... I'll, te uh, I'll tell you what I do. Yeah. I, in, normally people sit on a cajon uh, in a straight kind of a way like you sit on a chair. Yes. What I do is I move the point of the cajon. In other words, I sit on it in a diamond shape. Ah. So the cajon's a diamond shape. With the venom, uh, with the soundboard on my right hand side, I if you know what I mean, under my right leg, and my right leg is the is is the foot that's keeping the beat the side because I'm using it sideways. Yes, you know what I'm saying. Yes. Sideways on the venom, yes. so so yes. that's yes. what yes. accommodates that. So I actually play a little bit sideways. Okay. I play with my my one hand under my one leg and the other one under the other leg, but I use brushes. I don't really use my hands. Yes, and then tell me, ah, oh, is there any trick with the brushes? Or you just play it with a brush? I just play with the brushes. The yeah. reason why I do it is because it's a nice contrast mm. between the bass drum of the foot, which actually, yes. if, it's, if, the, if the sound is set well, it sounds very good. Ah. So there's a good contrast between the bass and the type of sound that you get from the brushes. Because you must remember, it's, mine's got a built-in snare that's un, in, unadjustable. Yes, you yeah. told me about that. Yeah. So what happens is the brushes sound uh, um, sort of nice and shuffling, mm. if you know what I'm saying. Mm. And then I have this bass drum that keeps the beat. And then, of course, I also hit with the brushes. And I've got two different types. I've got the standard brushes that are made from, it looks like, piano wire or guitar string. Yeah, yeah. And then I've got another type of brush that um, we saw on the internet somewhere. <laughs> Excuse me, that they, um, they make in America. Yeah. And it's made of some kind of a plastic a fiber like they make brooms of it or something so it's more like a reed in a way but it's mm. not you see a reed is too brittle this is quite yeah. flexible oh. you know what I mean? those so, wooden reeds are shit they, yeah. they just break I understand shatters yeah. all over the show and i don't actually think i've never tried those wooden ones on on uh, cajon uh. but the reason why i use the others is if i'm if, if we're doing some rock instead of hitting it with my hand because that's mm. That, that's another step of harshness, you know what I mean? It's pretty loud, yeah. Yeah, uh -huh. so I just played with those things and it gives quite a nice whack. Nice. But you can't play subtly with those things. It's yeah. Just, you either hit it or you don't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The okay. nice thing about the brushes, I use my foot, I use the brushes as they are, one in each hand, mm. and then sometimes what I do is I add a finger, so I put a finger in amongst the bristles ah. of the brush and, and when I strike the, the cajon, it just, just sounds slightly different. It's yeah. not markedly, but it's different, uh -huh. which sometimes you need. You can almost compare it to if you if you play a kit, if you play a drum kit and you take the stick and you sort of hit the vellum and the rim. At the same time. So, yeah. for a different it's, yeah. a, it's the same type of thing. You yeah. do it for a reason. Okay. Yeah. Um, but yeah, now with the Cajon story, then uh, then we connected through that. Yes. It's a, I love these stories, like how how it, it's, it was kind of a... Kind of a 
started out as kind of a bad connection, but it turns out of a great connection because we we met uh, in Cape Town and you offered to replace the soundboard yeah. of the microphone. Yeah. We had a fat chat and you have like, and then from that the podcast stems. So that's okay. like that's usually how I met. Uh, well, not usually how I met, but like through through gigs and through happenings I, yes. I would connect with someone and then say hey um now that we've connected would you mind coming to have a chat with I understand, me yes. and i'm glad you 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 stem in well i'm going to but i was very lucky because this was the end of a lied that we played yeah and i can't i couldn't even hear when the monitor was actually pretty soft for my ass it was only me you know yeah and uh, so we came to the end of the song to, to be dramatic. I do the macaron as well. Yeah. I lifted my heel and I kicked, hit it with the back of my heel, not yeah. thinking. You must remember, I can't hear, not thinking. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, I've done it on macaron hundreds of times. Yeah. And so what happened is just, just crack the, the, the venom. And of yeah. course, it's not, it wasn't visual, visible because yeah. I would have, and I, would, I didn't hear it either because it would have gone crack. Yeah. So, yeah. So I like, couldn't hear it either. So I would have seen it. But you obviously you work with your hands, so yeah. you felt it. And you said ah, and then when I felt it, I could feel it straight away. Yeah. And then of course it turns out that I just replaced the the soundboard on microphone, and I still had board. And I said, don't worry, relax, I'll fix yours. So it was a good timing. And it was great. great. I worked yeah. it fine, and I met some nice people the day that I did it as well. That was a, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah at, uh, my friend Thomas's place. Yeah, yeah. yeah. the what the opposite of a baby shower? The main yeah. version of a baby shower. <laughs> Luckily, there was a whole workshop with tools yes. and stuff. Yes, and it was indoors. It was really confusing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so you the, talking about about replacing soundboards and stuff? Do you build any other instruments? Well, there's one that I built. It's called a clarinet. Yes, you gave me one. Gave me one. Yes, oh, I remember that. It's, it's made. You know that that the, the tongue depressors that a doctor uses like a it's like an ice cream sucker stick, but it's very wide and it's slightly. Thinner. Yeah. It's made of those. Yeah. I'm quickly looking for it. And I the reason, find it, but okay. you carry on talking. Okay. The reason why I came up with that thing is because in the band that I play in the Boulevard Youth Band, I'm a percussion. I'm actually a harmonica player. If since you, that's Here it. we go. Then. Yeah. So um, this is the Clarisse. Yeah. I've got another one here too, by the way. Oh, cool. Just this. <laughs> um, it anyway, resembles the, the finger clapping. It's a th yeah, finger clicking. Yeah. The thing is, what happens is when I first sort of started playing uh, in the band, you can't you can't play harmonica all the time. Yeah. So you, and you, it's not it's not so much about what you're playing; it's about what you're doing. Mm. There's my one. Yeah. Um, <laughs> see, it each one sucks. The sides sound different. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. it's nice in a recording studio. You've got something that sounds different. Yeah. Anyway, so. Um, what was I saying? Uh, how the Clarisse started, like how... Oh, yes, yes, of course. So now, uh, I can't, you can't play harmonica, you have to do something. And also, for me, playing music is about people. Mm. You know what I mean? So people come to see you and hear you. It's mm. about seeing and hearing and being entertained. You know what I mean? Mm. So what happens is, um, so now I've got to do something else. So now I've, I had maracas. So I was playing maracas, but you can't play maracas all night. Then I play a tavern, you can't play that all night. So then for some songs, I'd start the song and I'd click my fingers. You know? mm. Some songs, I'd have to play my finger, click my fingers. Throughout the whole yeah, But now, <laughs> on the set list, sometimes I don't know what's on the set list. The next song also takes <laughs> clicking fingers off. By the time you get to the second song, your forearms from clicking fingers <laughs> yes. are so sore, it's not even funny. So I was thinking, 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 thinking. Then I got a thing called 
a Japanese benzasaur. Have you ever heard of that? Mm -hmm. Sounds like this. Mm -hmm. This is it. Goes, sounds like it. Wow. Okay. I thought, yeah, that's quite cool. That's not. That's not like a. But the principle is that. Jeez, that's pretty loud. It is loud. I think. Yeah, I think the level might have distorted now. But that that's doesn't, okay. doesn't matter. Never mind. Um. Yeah, yeah. What it's it is that. basically, it's a whole lot of. It's a whole lot of um little uh, uh, thin boards. You know, like planks. Yes. That, uh, that are that are bound together with two pieces of nylon wire, mm -hmm. and what they do is. It almost works like a concertina. So you open the 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 the, the, the flares out like a fan, and then yeah. as you close it, the little little pieces of wood hit against one another. That oh. gives you this. That gives you this awesome. slow motion. Let yeah. Let me let me see that. Oh so wow! It's got a tail of a lizard and a head of a lizard. Yes. This so is you hold really it by cool. the tail. Yeah. And yeah. then you just lift it. Lift it. Yeah. Like this. Yeah. I don't do it with my hand. I lift it with my left hand. I just flick it up. Yeah. That's too far. Oh, I see. see. Now this is a bit of, just just all you do is you just raise your wrist. Yes, yes. That's, I just all I do is I raise my wrist like right vibe. Yeah. Wow. But it takes a bit of getting used to because yeah. you don't get the time right. Anyway, yeah. South Africa was good enough, but it wasn't. So anyway, I was thinking, thinking. One day, I was in a in a coffee uh, place, quite a fancy coffee place in Canal Walk, yeah. and I saw these sucker sticks, and I thought, you know, like the same as the story I told you about the cigarette that was going to go to waste. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. They, these they were chucking these in the bin, and they looked quite good to me. They just had a bit of coffee on. Let me just let me think about so I took a few out of the bin. That's called dumpster diving. Uh. I dumpster diving a couple, <laughs> and I took them home and I cleaned them and I stuck them together in a staircase kind of a way. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because it works like a staircase. Yeah. I stuck them together. I just did it with elastic and I took it to gigs and it actually worked. So then after that I started to glue them together and the one that I used professionally is also held with elastic. And it works well. I've got, I've got a very thin one that's very lame. I believe in lame things as well. Yeah. You, know, you have old things and you have lame things. I think sort of like. So this is bold and this is compared to that, this is lame. Yeah. And I've got an even even lamer one than that. You mm -hmm. know? So the Clarisse, there was a cool story about that. There was oh, a oh, woman that we, uh, that danced at your gigs. Tell, yeah, tell us we, about that. I'll tell you the story. Yeah. When I was 16, I used to go to a club in Springs called the Cosmo Club. That's a long time ago, 1970. You grew up in Nigel, right? That's right. Okay. 1970, I used to go to this Cosmo Club. And I was wanting to be a musician. I mean, I was already playing. I was already played in a band by that time. Mm. And I used to, there was a band that played there called Fruits of Loom, and I never missed them. They were a Rhodesian band. I used to go and stand right in front of the band, and I used to watch the lead guitarist. Fruits of Loom. Fruits. Fruits of Loom. Fruits of Loom. Okay. Fruchter. Yes, like yes. Okay. What, what what instrument did you play back then? Was it guitar. Was it guitar? guitar. My first okay. instrument was a piano accordion, but that was when I was 10. Ah. So now I'm like, by, this, by the time I was 12, I started on guitars. Ah, okay. So anyway, so I used to watch this guitarist and I learned chords from him because there's nobody to teach me. There were no books that I could yeah. get in those days. Yeah. So I used to watch him and he used to tell me things. And I asked him afterwards, what was that that you did? And he'd tell you. Anyway. That's right, and I used to stay in front of the band the whole night. And there was another crowd of people. The woman used to like the guys, and the guys used to like the woman. They used to hang out, and they were all behind the band. And then there was the, the other bunch of guys that the hooligans that used to pick fights. See, so there are three types of people that used to go. So I was right in front of the band. Now this Clarice used to go there at the same time as I did. She was actually the girlfriend of a friend of mine, and I never met her then. I met her in in uh, in, Gordon's, in Gordon's Gordon's Bay. Bay. years later. In I'll tell you when it was. It was two thousand and six. Wow. I met in two thousand and six. So now we're talking a long, long time. It's thirty six years. Eh? Yeah. Something like that, right? Uh, 
And it turns out, you know, and she knows this one and she knows that and she knows everybody I know. Yeah. Anyway, she was a great fan of the band and she was one of these uninhibited type of people that would just... Um, dance when she yeah, was in dance. Uh, yeah. if, if she didn't matter to who, if she was right in the middle of the floor, all or not, and right about, she danced amongst the tables. It yeah. felt like there was a dance floor. Yeah, yeah. And she was just uh, like that. She, she was uninhibited and she thoroughly enjoyed it. There were certain songs that we used to especially play for her mm. because she really liked it. And her name was Clarissa Murchie. Yeah. Anyway, what had happened was she had, in, uh, I think at the end of 2016, it might be 17, on Christmas Day, she passed away because she'd had an aneurysm mm. a couple of days before. And she was in hospital. So I used to send her voice messages so, on the phone while she was in hospital because mm. she wasn't uh, that conscious anyway. And then I, I, we heard that she passed away on Christmas Day. So I thought, well, I've made, I've come up with this instrument. Mm. So I thought, I'll tell you what, it sounds a bit like Clarice. You know, if you do yeah. that. Mm. So I'm going to call it, it sounds, her name's Clarissa. Yeah. So I think I'll call it a Clarice after yeah, her. So, yeah. And it's, it sounds a bit Frenchy. Because so. there's no A in the actual yeah. sound of yeah. Clarissa. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I just Clarissed it. Yeah. <laughs> so that's where it came from. Awesome. So I'm, I'm the official inventor of the place. Ah, nice. Um, <clears throat> so, any other percussion instruments you've made? I made a, a kind of a belt once. Yeah. Um, I'll tell you what I used. If you, uh, a, a motor car's windscreen wiper's got a stiff stainless steel, uh, it's like support inside yeah, of it to, yeah. keep the, to keep the rubber taut so it isn't anyway. Yeah. When the windscreen wiper's uh, finally wear out that little piece you can extract, you see. Mm. So I had two of those in my toolbox and, and I thought to myself, what I really need is I need a little belchery that I can, that's not too involved. You just need a small thing that you can almost hold uh, together with a maraca or something else. You know, you don't want, because there is a belchery that you get, but it's too bulky. Uh -huh. So you can't really combine it easily with something else. So anyhow, I thought, let me make one. So I took this windscreen wiper and I made almost an umbrella looking thing. You know what I mean? If you, if you, if you yeah. need to draw an umbrella, the outline of, I made it an umbrella looking thing. And I just went to um, a haberdashery shop and I just bought bells, you know, they, they sell things for kids. Mm. And I just bought a couple of, uh, like Christmas bells. Well, not Christmas bells, what are they called? Uh, it's like a closed bell with a little ball inside. Bought a few of those, I bought about six or seven of those. And I just, and they fitted on this windscreen wiper thing and then I just made a little handle and it sealed it off and that's what I use. It's another thing that I can So what does it, uh, uh, is it... Have you used it on any studio or live recordings yes, of Little Blues? Is that the Lisp bell? It's not the Lisp bell. No, what's a Lisp bell? I don't even know. What I don't know. There's a there's a live Boulevard Blues recording where uh, for, uh, your vocalist Doc Johnny says, "Hit that Lisp bell one more time." Oh, I don't know. What <laughs> it's on the, the Railhouse tracks. On the Railhouse tracks. Yeah. Uh, uh, We'll have to go and listen. <laughs> anyway, okay, yeah, yeah. that's cool. I love these. Like uh, Rudy from uh, Akades also yeah. makes like his own, yes, he does his own guitars and yeah. all his own percussion instruments. Yeah. Very interesting stories. So on the topic of percussion instruments and stuff, tell us a bit of uh, how you know the history of the cajon. We were just uh, speaking of the cajon. The cajon. The way I understand the history of the cajon is um, in the days of slavery. Yeah. In South America, there, were, there was a contingent of slaves that were also sold to South America. And of course, the, there was a whole different kind of agricultural setup in South America. And I think it was well, some kind of plantation, probably sugar or something. And the slaves were African slaves that had come from West Africa and they were in South America. But what it, their culture is drumming and how they communicate in their own country. Uh, long distances with drumming because of the frequency that carries long distances. Tambura. So, yeah, so they'd, they'd almost, they'd be like a relay of drummers 
if they want to pass the message on. You know what I mean? Mm. There'd be a drummer here and another one on top of the hill, like that sort of thing. Mm. And then this guy understands what he said on the drums. It's almost like it's sort of a Morse code that they yes. would speak. They'd have a conversation. I don't know. I don't know how the patterns were. Anyway, the thing that it, uh, uh, the landowners at the time uh, had a, had a um, a contingent of of slaves on their farm that were doing all the work, but they weren't happy with the threat of this this drumming thing because you know they understood that it's it's a type of communication that they're not uh, familiar with, you know. So what they did, they forbade them to speak their own language and they forbade them to play drums. So in other words, what they did was they, they basically they put a, a skewer into the heart of their culture because their culture is about drumming. So a lot of their ceremonies, even the minor things, it's all about drumming, you know. Because, I mean, they have these, they had a rhythmical type of person, pe- uh, 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 people, they're a rhythmical type of people. They, they imprint rhythm into the babies and into the small children because that's what you have to do it's not natural you have to imprint it you see so uh so they decided okay fine we're not allowed to have the drums so what we'll do we'll uh, for our ceremonies our little ceremonies and religious things and so on we'll come up with something so they made a box that they could sit on and play see so in other words you couldn't hear the drumming for it was just kind of around here and if it were if that were complained about Basically, if the landowner came, if the, the land, yeah, you know, the landowner came there, uh, they'd be sitting on a box. Uh, if you, so it just looks like yeah, it's, yeah, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a chair or yeah. whatever. So yeah. what happened is in this century, some guy, I, I, I read it somewhere, mm-hmm. on an island somewhere near South America. You know, just a, he came up with this idea and he took a cajon and he and he made a round hole in it for, uh, as a baffle, uh-huh. which then fits a microphone. So it's like a sound hole on a guitar, yeah. but it also takes a microphone. Yeah. So the cajon on its own, actually... Or like a kick drum. Yeah, in this, uh, this, that's right. It's yeah. the same principle. Yeah. So what happens is, um, this, the cajon on its own, If you sound, it sounds like a silly box that you're sitting on and banging on. Mm. But the minute you mark it up, then it takes on a completely different dynamic. Mm. And, if, and if, you're, if you're sound engineer, uh, uh, sometimes they use more than one mic, but he can... For me, they give me a nice bass sound, yeah. and they give me a top, nice toppy sound, so that my brushes... Have a contrast with a with a um, with a foot mm. technique that I use. Now, now that you're talking like that, I'm thinking you you're good with your hands. Obviously, I've, I've seen you operate in a workshop. Uh, what other jobs have you worked in your life? Oh, I've I've done. Geez, tell you what, I started out as. Yes. I st- what I wanted to be was I wanted to do either um, uh, commercial art or drafting or uh, architecture or something like that at school. So I did technical drawing at school. And I did woodwork at school, you know, because the two went together, mm. and a bit of metal work. Anyway, so after school, uh, I'd had a, a quite a serious motorcycle accident, so I ended up on crutches for a year. Sure. And in that time, I was, I was hunting for jobs, and I couldn't find anything. Eventually, I was so desperate. Once I put the crutches down, I said, "This is it. I'm going to go as a draftsman, or I'm going to go as a photo lithographer, which is basically the visual side of printing. In other words, you work with film." And uh, things like that. Not actual printing, but you know, the, uh, what they call the pre-press stuff. Yeah. So I was looking in the yellow pages or in the newspaper. I said, the first one that gives me the interview that gives me the job is the job of the day. <laughs> so, I, got, I got so good that I used to know telephone numbers off by heart. Because in those days, you looked in the newspaper and you made a phone call. Yeah. Because I've been doing it for a year. Anyway, having been unemployed, I was, I was my mother's housemaid. And <laughs> I was <laughs> Anyway, so I, the first job I got was one as a photo lithographer. So I, I qualified in the print industry, working in a dark room, 
Okay. Uh, with film and cameras. So that and was your first job. You told me about Nana. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And you worked that for about 15 years? 15 years. Wow. Yeah. That's impressive. Yeah, I know. And of course, you work in dark rooms and they have red light. Mm. When I went to Holland, the guy said to me, did I go to the red light district? I said, no, I worked in a dark room for 15 years. <laughs> red light for a lifetime. <laughs> so how, how did that come to an end and what did you do after that? Well, the interesting thing about it um, is that the job became obsolete because mm. um, desktop publishing, computerization, uh, did a wonderful job of it, in actual fact. Because uh, there was, a, there was, for instance, there was a, an operation that used to take us one whole day, sometimes a day and a half. Mm -hmm. You had an A4 color picture, mm -hmm. and um, you wanted you wanted to reproduce this to print it as a, as a color picture in a magazine or a newspaper. No, not usually a newspaper, a magazine or something like yeah. that. Uh, they would have to color separate it uh, on a camera uh, with all sorts of filters and so on, and end up with. Um, Four negatives, one for each color. You know, the, the mm. four colors in printing: cyan, yellow, black, and magenta. Anyway, so uh, and then after that, you've, all you've got is a, a what they call a continuous tone negative. But you, you can't print continuous tone because print ink prints black. Uh, you know what I mean? It doesn't print shades. Okay. So how they do that is they fool the eye, they screen it, they they convert it into those little dots. You must have seen that in a newspaper. Yeah. And what happens is the eye reads the white space behind it and the, the size of the dot, and it gives you a shade, okay. a combination of the two. So it's, you're actually fooling your eyes. So now what happens is you have to screen these colors, but because um, this, the, 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 the amount of lines per inch are the same on all the screens, you have to angle them so that you don't get a, you get a thing called a moray pattern. You don't get that pattern. So each one is 15 degrees apart sort of thing. Mm. So then they have to screen it and convert it into a half tone. Uh, you know, like they, they call it screen positives in the four different colors. And then that they superimpose uh, they put, you know, they print it. They superimpose the one on top of the other, and the combination of those inks gives you full color. Mm. So now the screening would take the whole afternoon, and then on the next morning they do retouching because now uh, there are aberrations on the camera of screening. So some of the colors would be too harsh, or some of them wouldn't be bright enough, or you know what I mean, that sort of thing. Uh, because because nothing is perfect. So it used to take about a day and a half. Once they came out with the computer technology and the scanning and the so on. It took three minutes to do the same thing. Shit. And then that, wow. was, that was just one, what they call a training, which is a transparency. But the way that it came out in those days was with a laser drum. It was like a glass drum. And they used to put, fit, a, I think, about up to 30 of those um, trainees on the drum and scan them all in three minutes. You know what I mean? So that makes so it easier. So it's a bit of an industrial revolution yeah. story. Yeah, but it worked for the printing industry because what happened then we used to print mainly in black and sometimes with a spot color, a bit of red or yellow or something like that. Mm. The minute this technology came, it was so cheap to do color that the printing presses started printing color. So in order to do that, they'd buy four color machines. First they started with two, then they went to four, then mm. it's five, now it's yeah. six, and so they go, you see. So what happens is it's very quick and uh, a lot of people use it because if somebody else is using color and you don't use color, then the, you know what I mean, in advertising, they have the preference, you see. It's like if you don't have a cell phone, nobody wants to deal with you because they can't get all of them. And everybody else has. It's the same sort of thing. Uh, so I did the printing the world, but they don't need me anyway. And they, from where? From there? Where did you go to? Then, let me just think. Then, oh, then I went into the disco business. Disco business? Disco business. Okay. Um, what had happened is I'd gotten divorced. My ex-wife remarried and her and her husband 
moved up to Port Elizabeth and they took my daughter with them. Mm. So I wasn't prepared to, to live a life without my daughter and I didn't want my daughter to live without a father. So I went up there as well. Mm. And one of my friends had had a couple of clubs in Cape Town, about three or four that I know of. And he said, well, he'd like to come with me. I said, yeah, well, what are you going to do? He says, well, he wants to open a club. I said, well, let's go. So off we went. At the time, I had a caravan. So accommodation was kind of looked after. We just had to pay for the site. Yeah. And off we went. And then we went to pee and we started sort of casing the joints, you know, going to the town and see, you get the feel of the city. It's very different to Cape Town. And after a few months, two or three months, we approached the hotel and they gave us uh, the use of the top floor. And we opened a club there and it was called Valentino's. And it was 1986, 1986. Hmm. And that ran for just short of a year and a half. And then after that, um, I became a door-to-door salesman. I sold dinner sets and pots door to door all over the country okay. and learned to speak Afrikaans in three weeks. <laughs> yeah, I must say, you're pretty uh, oiled in the Afrikaans language. <laughs> so let's backtrack and go to the music side. So we yes. were touching on that with your school vibes in, in Nigel and your, oh, yes. in the club in Springs. So you started on, on classical guitar and then uh, from there, well, firstly, I want to know what did you play in any bands in school and college? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I'll tell you what I did. I started on piano accordion. I had a friend that played a piano accordion when we were 10. Yes. So I could play, like, you know, the, the, the melodic hits like Wooden Heart and, and stuff like that in those days, you know, that, that was on the radio. A couple of Beatles songs, we just play the melody. And then a couple of years, uh, that was when I was 10. By the time I was 12, uh, a, a friend arrived from Port Elizabeth and he could play guitar. So he taught me to play guitar. So he got into a band quickly. We were only in stand six. He got into a band with a school band. All the other guys were in the trick, you know, they were standard nine. So he got into that band. Then he just stayed for that year, taught me to play guitar. And then he left, he went back to PE and I then took over in the band after him. So I was 13 years old and I was playing in this band. And we were playing songs like um, Mustang Sally. Mm. And we, in the, at the time it was, um, soul music was quite popular. So we played a couple of flame songs. Mm. Uh, and uh, Wilson Pickett, and you know, do you still play guitar? Yeah, I still play guitar. Does it? Yeah, yeah. Okay. It's my main instrument, actually. Okay, wow. <laughs> um, uh, just for myself, you know, I compose and I, yeah. whatever. I yeah, use it yeah. to practice and so on. If I'm working on something. Okay, and from that band, from where, that where, band, where did the harp come in? Oh, I'll tell you what happened. My sister, she, uh, she had a boyfriend uh, who lived in Springs, a guy by the name of Keith Hutchinson. We ended up playing for Hawk and then eventually Jaluka and Savuka. Wow. And Keith Hutchinson was a, was a British immigrant uh, who, who'd studied at the Royal yeah. School of Music in London or something. Yes, uh, isn't it Royal Albert? Oh, something like that. Yeah. Anyway, Royal Academy of Music or something. Yes. Anyway. And so he was, he'd studied classical piano. He could, I, I met him, he was playing in a band and he was a bass player. But he could play flute and saxophone and keyboards. Uh, guitar and bass, sure. And uh, he was quite a, quite a, quite an all-rounder. Yeah. Mm. Anyway, he, he in those days, I'm talking about 1968. That's a long time ago. Mm. That's what 51 years ago. Yes. <laughs> 68. He, uh, the music that uh, was available to us in this country was just via like LM radio and uh, eventually yeah. Swazi yeah, music radio and so on. Yeah. But I mean, it wasn't. It was just really commercial. It wasn't mm. uh, what we used to call. What we call alternative music now, we used to call it underground. Mm. You know? Anyway, so he introduced to me in 68, 69, Jimi Hendrix. Uh, 
and uh, I don't know, bands like uh, Canned Heat and yeah, you know, stuff like that, sort of. I'm just, especially Jimi Hendrix. I Maybe Grand Funk Railroad. No, no, that was after that. That was after that, okay, that's the 70s. Yeah, yeah. Um, who don't know? Oh, yes, 10 years after. Mm. 10 years after Jimi Hendrix. Uh, I can't remember. Anyway, and then, um, so he used to come to a house and he'd spend the afternoon and the evening with my sister. And he'd come with a, with a pile of records that his brother would have sent him from England because you couldn't get the records here. So that's, he introduced me to, and Cream, you know Cream oh, and stuff yeah. like that. Oh, yeah. before anybody knew. So he would play those records. Yeah, you can play these. And we, in those days, we used to have a battery operated record player. That's how we operated. Sure. One speaker, no stereo. So I used to sit in my room with this thing on the floor and listen to this music, and I kind of got into it. Anyway, I, as a kid, I was forever collecting instruments. I had a, a piano accordion, I had a guitar, I had a... What did I have? I had a man. No, not yet. Yeah, I had a mandolin. Yeah. And that's, I can't remember what else. Anyway. And uh, and the harp? And I had a, a couple of harmonicas and I had a thing called a Jews harp. They call it an Afrikaans a trompi. Oh, yes. I know uh, a trompi. And penny whistles and things like that because they used to ah. play those things. And I had a bugle. A real bugle. What that I bought. What is a bugle? It's a, it's a, they use it in a cadet band. It's, a, it's like a trumpet, but oh, it's got no keys. Okay, okay. And often comes a buell. Anyway, so uh, he would always always come to us. He came on up. He had a little 50cc Yamaha. Mm. And he used to come with an anorak with records in the front and rack on. doesn't matter what the weather was to come with my sister. He'd always come to my room first yeah. and say, these are the records I bought you. And then he'd sit down and check my instruments out. And one day, I had this F harmonica. It was, a, it was called an Echo Vampa. Mm. Hona Echo Vampa on my disc my school desk, and he saw this thing and he picked it up and he started to play bluesy stuff on it and I thought, this I've got to do. But by this time I'm 16, you see. Okay. This I've got to do. So anyway, I thought, I'm going to watch me, I'm going to learn, you see. Because I mean, it's funny, you see the thing about a harmonica is the technique is all inside of your mouth. You can't see what you're doing mm. and nobody else can see either. Yeah. So what you do is you reconfigure your mouth to change the pressure of the air, yeah. to bend the reeds, to give you the, you know what I mean? That's the kind of thing. Anyway, so I took this harmonica with me to school in my blazer pocket, in the top pocket, and I used to, just between periods, between classes, I used to hold it upright, and I found a note, like the third note on the harmonica on the lower side, mm. and that note, I just played that note, I learned to isolate it, because you've got to isolate notes, mm. and I learned to bend it in between classes, and then one day on a big walk, I said, today I'm going to learn this thing, and I took it, and for 30 kilometers, I just played harmonica until I could play. Mal, <laughs> how do you isolate those notes? What you do is you, you, um, you purse your lips, but... Different people have different lips. I always say, I've got apocalypse. <laughs> different people have different lips and different techniques. So I, yeah. I can show you my technique, but it doesn't necessarily work for yeah, you. you know? uh, so you push it almost like a bird. Yeah. Okay, do that. Push your lips. Yeah. So I've got a way of doing it. Uh, other people use tonguing techniques. I don't like tonguing techniques mm. because uh, it's kind of rough on your tongue. And it mm. doesn't, uh, to me, it's unhygienic anyway. Mm. So also, the only tonguing I ever do is I play harmonica, but like trumpet, because I used to play trumpet at school, yeah. the cadet band. So I tongue uh, with my harmonica, like I used to do with the trumpet, on the top of your mouth, not in the mouthpiece. Mm. You know what I mean? Yes. 
So that's and that's where I learned. I was sixteen when I learned harmonica, which is if you want to know my age, it was nineteen seventy. <laughs> so that is a few weeks ago. <laughs> you can figure it out. Um, I was speaking to uh, Louis Averbach, uh, yeah. that plays with Gerd Fognell. He was yeah. the last guy on my podcast show, yeah. and he told a, a few things of, of of blues playing and how you suck the notes if yes, you play okay. blues. Um, if is there any stuff that you can throw my way with with regards to playing different genres he said like country you would do more of this and blues you would more is there like some hidden blues techniques that people haven't heard of or yeah i'll tell you i'll tell you what i know um, basically with blues you use the system you use is you play the cross harp system in other words in order to bend the note you have it has to be a draw note because what you do is you, you um, by reconfiguring your mouth and altering the pressure you don't blow harder, you just alter the pressure. The same way as a, with a vacuum cleaner, you've got a small suction uh-huh. nozzle. And that suction nozzle, if you suit the vacuum and you close, it start to close the nut nozzle, the vacuum cleaner mach- motor doesn't go any faster, but the pitch of the note changes. Uh-huh. So it's the same type of principle. That so what you do is you, you reconfigure your mouth. In other words, you create pressure by making the aperture in your mouth smaller. Yeah. You see? And you're the whole inside of your mouth that you do that. I also use my neck for that. Yeah. You know? Okay. Um, so that's and that's a, that's called cross hop. So what happens is, uh-huh. uh, you uh, when you play cross hop, you play in a perfect fourth uh, from the key that the band's playing. So for yes. instance, if the band is playing in E, which is the top string of a guitar, the lowest string of a guitar, presentationally yes. speaking, then the cross hop harmonic you use for the key of E is an A harp. Uh-huh. That's a perfect fourth. Okay. The perfect fourth of an A is a D, and the perfect fourth of a D is a G. And so you go. Yeah. You see. So that's. That's the blues harp technique. You can sometimes use it in country, mm-hmm. um, but country's not that bluesy because bluesy's got it has blue notes. You know, notes that tug at your heart. Uh-huh. Yeah. Country is more is is not as dissonant. It's more what they call consonant in music. It's sweeter sounding. Yeah. Not only melodic. Um, blues, it's, it's it's got a lot to. It's almost like almost to do with gut feel. You know, mm-hmm. like you get a. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, so that's the that's the difference in the techniques. Then you get you get uh, like. Uh, consonant music, which the hills are alive with the sound of music. No, 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 no. no that that's consonant. Yeah. Now that you'd use a chromatic harmonica for, because on that you have um, sharps and flat notes, because you've got a press button on the side. So in other words, you've got two sets of, of two rows of, of notes. One is sharp and flat, the other one is is in the C scale. So, mm. so you'd use that a chromatic harmonica for that okay. sort of thing. That's the difference. I saw when I was checking out some of your stuff, I saw an interesting name and I want to know more about this job you did. Uh, I'm jumping in between uh, from subject to subject, but that's usually how it goes here. Harvester of International Ministries. Oh, oh, what is that? It's a church that I'm in. Uh, I'll tell you this. It's a long story. 1972, I'd had this motorcycle accident. I was walking around crutches, but I was still a guitar guitarist and I had a, I had a 1947 or 1948 Gibson uh, guitar it was an acoustic with it had a built-in pickup it was an art top with f-holes that I borrowed from a friend yeah. he couldn't play so he lent it to me indefinitely <laughs> so I used nice. to play this thing so I used to go to a, a hippie church in Johannesburg yeah called the Invisible Church and the Invisible Church was started by the king of the hippies in Hillbrow at the time who had become what they call a Jesus freak he got converted you see. Yeah. So he had this church, which he'd started in a club that I used to go to. It used to be a club. 
see now the clubs closed down so they started the church and, you know and it was so unorthodox it was actually uh, i still think about it a lot it was so unorthodox because at the time you used to go to you used to go there on a friday night mm. and they had beanbags all over the place they used to show movies and they used to serve coffee i think the coffee was free or maybe just five cents or something and they used to chat to people and so on because there were a lot of um, a lot of kind of um yeah it's like a coffee krug yeah, like a, yeah but it was very informal i'll tell you why because uh, you see for a church in, in in my opinion that was quite a trendsetter because at the time there's no we were conservative in those days mm. if you went to the a church and you had long hair they wouldn't allow you in uh -huh. if you were a woman and you had a beehive they wouldn't allow, and makeup they wouldn't allow you in sure. if you were a woman wearing slacks they wouldn't allow you in because you're wearing men's clothes that's it was legalistic in those days that's kind of i don't know anyway probably calvinistic anyway <laughs> so now that was the order of the day if you were gay you couldn't go to a church they chased mm -hmm. you like a dog you know what I mean? not that people admitted they were gay. but anyway no. if you were if you were for instance if you were a sex change um you know like yeah like, transgender uh, yeah, or, yeah trans, trans what they call a uh, yeah <laughs> if you were one of those they wouldn't allow you in either you see mm -hmm. but in this invisible church also, uh, there was apartheid in the country at the time. So if you were colored, you weren't allowed there. Never mind black. You know what I'm saying? Or Indian. Mm. So in this church, everybody was allowed. Uh -huh. So they had, um, there were transgender people, there were gay people, there were lesbian well, the, women. The name makes a bit more sense to me. Invisible now. church. Yeah. yeah. And the, the, what they did was they emphasized. You see the emphasis is they want to make rules. You don't want rules. Especially the hippie generation. Because what happened was society was changing. You know what I mean? This, mm. You know what I mean? This, this is like post-Woodstock. Or in actual fact, the revival started in South Africa in 69. Actually, no, 70. Just after Woodstock, you see. So now there's this whole, you know, the American, there's this whole freedom type of mentality in the hippies and so on and so forth. So the hippies didn't want to go to a church where you're restricted and you have to sit and behave and comb your hair and, you know what I mean, wear a suit and so on. They want to go to church in sandals. And you know, like that no. was the one. So anyway, I went to this church. I was just interested in playing music. My sister was a Jesus freak. I just wanted to play music. So yeah. of course, I go to this church. Oh, I'm telling you a long story. Yeah. <laughs> I go to this church, and yes, this guy playing the piano, and he's got long hair, and he's playing blues on the piano. I thought, well, that's cool. So I join him. I get to meet him. His name's Andre Pelsa, mm. and he, I'm playing guitar much better, and he's playing blues. I'm just following him, you know, because mm. that's what I learned. I learned to improvise like that. And it was wonderful. So uh, I played there for, I don't know, maybe a year I went to that church. And then Andre Pelsa disappeared. And of course, uh, things happened and I got a job and I was working and this, that, and the next thing. And then, but before I knew it, I was in the army. So I came out of the army and I moved to Cape Town while I was in the army. I sort of made the army move me. Mm. And then I, I met the woman that became my wife eventually. Mm. And we stayed in Cape Town for five years or whatever. And then we moved to Johannesburg to get married. See. And we were looking for a church in Joburg because we got involved in the church in Cape Town. We were looking for a church in Joburg. And uh, we found a church, which is, it was called the Evangel Church. It was in, what was it? The YMCA, no, the Inv, what's that? The, the sub-theater in, in Bromfordy, I can't remember. No. Intimate Theater, that's what it was, next to the YMCA. Anyway, and so of course, 
I'm sitting in this church and yes, this, this guy comes in, he's, he's, he's invited to come and play. His name's Andre Pelsa, but now he's lost a little uh, heat. <laughs> so I went him afterwards and said, I remember your name, but you yeah. didn't look the same. Yeah. <laughs> so of course I, I paired up with him and then we, him and I went to that same church. He became an associate pastor there in that church. Because right. he, what he did was, in the interim, he'd gone to Bible College in America, in um, Arizona, in the desert. Some guy started a Bible College in the middle of the desert. <laughs> yeah. And it was quite, it was quite a, it was called Miracle Bible College, quite, yeah. quite uh, different from the normal, just, it was, anyway. He went there, and now he's back from Bible College, and he's now an associate pastor. So, we, we, we were in that church for, I don't know, probably three or four or five years, and then we moved back to Cape Town, and I kind of left him behind. He went to Australia and all sorts of things with his family, and then yeah. one day in about 1990, I was, in, I was back in Cape Town, I came back in 1990. I'd noticed after that, it was probably 1994, five or six. I was at, they just built Canal Walk. No, it must have been after that. 96, 97, yeah. They just built Canal Walk. And I was in Canal Walk in the parking lot, I got on my car and I saw, here's Andre Kelsa. Again? So, yeah, so he told me he's got a church in Cape Town, he's been here since 91. I said, oh great. So then I joined his church. And of course, we'd been musicians before, so we started a, a gospel blues band. Cool. And with a gospel blues band, we went to Nigeria one time. Oh my word. We played in a TV show there. Right? Like a, wow. Right? And we still play here in Cape Town. Uh, if he does. What's the name of the band? The band is called the Harvester Blues Band. Okay. Awesome. We, we play all his own compositions, just his compositions. Now, speaking TV shows, sorry, yeah. am I undercutting you? No, no, you're no. Not now, speaking TV shows and stuff, you, you work uh, as an extra in movies as well. Yes, I do. And you did uh, something that's going to air in 2020. It's something called Warrior. That's correct. And how did that happen? Well, basically, I was in a thing called Black Sales that they did yes. on yes. Film Studios. As uh, uh, I was the barman in the tavern. Okay. And what had happened is. One of my friends was a set builder and he told me about it. So uh, he went and spoke to the, the people that were in charge of hiring the extras, you know. The guy said, yeah, tell him we can come. So I went as an independent. In other words, I wasn't part of an agency. Normally you have to go as an, an agent has to send you. And so, of course, the guy said, yeah, no, you, you'll make a good barman. You know what I mean? So I said, oh, great. So you're the barman. So I became the barman. And I, I was, now what happens is you just pay tax, you don't pay agents fees, which is much better. You earn a bit right. It's, it's yes. a, probably about a hundred rand a day. It's yeah. a little bit. Mm. You know, if you're working, I worked on that set for four years, not every day, yeah. but for four seasons, you know what I mean? Mm. Some seasons you work 32 days, others you work 15 days, others you work eight, you know, like mm. four seasons. Anyway, so, um, so I was the boy in that. So now the agent that was, that hired me for that, while we were doing uh, black sales, he found me, I was a Wayne P at the time. He said, listen, he said, I need some big guys as pirates. They must have long hair and beards and they must be big. And they must look typical. So I said, hey, do you know anybody like that? I said, just give me 10 minutes. I looked on my phone and I sent him 13 of my friends, including the Akadis brothers. Ah, and they, you know what I mean? Okay. And Ari, our sound guy, and, this, uh, said, and of course, they all got a job. I think it was for a day or two and they got paid exactly double what I was getting paid. Oh, my word. But they had an absolute ball. They yeah. loved it. They were made up. They looked like SH1T. Uh. They had, you know what I mean? They were made up and they had beards and they, it was like a childhood game. Anyway. <laughs> so, then Black Cells was over after four years and um, right at the end of this last season, in May, the same agent phoned me up and said, uh, do I think 
that I can put a mariachi band together because they want to form a mariachi band in a week's time. I said, no problem at all. I'll do it for the greatest of pleasure. I'd never heard of mariachi in my life before. <laughs> so, uh, but I was a salesman for too long. So the, the, the one yes. dangerous word in sales is no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Say no. <laughs> Not even no. Afrikaans, no. Uh, <laughs> no, no. <laughs> no, no, no. no. <laughs> and don't even say no. Yeah. So I just said, yes, I quickly Googled it and I saw that in actual fact a mariachi band is a, is a bunch of Mexicans. Normally you see them wearing sombreros mm. and they have a couple of guitars and a few trumpets and a this, that, and the next thing, maracas and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And maybe even somebody singing. So I looked it up and then he sent me a clip that said, this particular mariachi band is from 1870, which is just after the American Civil War. Mm. And so you're not wearing sombreros. The, the attire is totally different. It almost looks like peasant attire, you know. Yeah. So I said, well, that's not a problem. So now I had to get musicians, competent musicians, and they had to look Mexican. It's not, well, oh, Cape Town is not so bad. <laughs> Cape Town is not so bad. Yeah. But I got to the point where I needed the trumpeter. And the only trumpeter I could think of was happened to be a guy that played in our band when we first started. Yeah. He was the second trumpeter we had. His name is Lee Thompson. Yes, I know. He, he was, was on the show as well. Yeah. Oh. So anyway, yeah. I, I couldn't get hold of him. I didn't have his number. So I messaged him. I was desperate. It's Wednesday night. Thursday, we've got to go for a... For a um, an audition yeah. and a wardrobe fitting. I've got to have the, and it's a, they want a five piece band. Mm. So everybody else I've got, but I still need trumpeters. Mm. I need two trumpeters because it's harmonies. So I, I message him on Facebook. It's all I've got. Mm. So five o'clock in the morning, he messages me back. Now he says, I can't do it. I said, well, can you f please help me? I need two trumpeters. He says, yes, I'll put you on to somebody. So put me on to a guy, a, a young colored chap, about 23 years old. Mm. And what's his name? His name's, uh, Numib. Yeah. Adams, you right? Yes, uh, Hermans. Hermans, yeah. Numib, Hermans. Hermans, yeah. Yes, yes. He, you know him? Well, I don't know him. Oh, but no. I know, the, of the, him. tell you why I know of him is uh, Yanni Anapurt. Yeah. He told me about him. He's, he's a great player. He is. Yeah. Anyway, so I said, I didn't, I didn't talk to the guy. I never seen him. I never, uh, on, my, on WhatsApp, I said to him, listen, we need another trumpeter to play harmony with you. Mm. Have you got something? Yes. And he must look Mexican. Yeah, that's fine. Mm. So he rocked up with these two guys. I didn't even recognize him. I knew to see him. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because he was like waiting for us. And uh, I, what I, I sort of ran out of time. So I took the soundtrack that they sent me. And on my computer, I copied the music as best as I could. I wrote the rhythm track for, because there were two guitarists. Yeah. Myself and this other guy. I wrote the rhythm track so that he could follow it. it was, it's not very difficult chords. Uh -huh. And because uh, the other guy, I know him, but I don't know what he's like musically. And... Um, then the trumpet part, I had to write out the melody, but it's not a strange color melody because it's not very contrasty in how it goes. And it's very, it's sort of uh, very staccato and kind yes. of quick notes, you know? Yes, yes. And uh, yeah, st so uh, I, I wrote and I did as best as I could and I was trying to be accurate, you know, normally you have to be accurate. I've got this computer program and writing the notes. Anyway, I had to, I, it was time to go, I had to go to set because I can't be late. So I managed to put down a third of the song. So when I got there, I said to the guys, listen, yeah, I, I have, I, I had it printed on set. You know, I took my stick with me and I had it printed on set. I said, listen, here's a copy for each of you. You play the melody and you play, can you play the harmony? He said, yes, I usually play the harmony. I said, this is only a third of the song. So when you get to the end, you start playing it again. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, I didn't have time. You know? Yeah. So, because the, the guy sent me the music later and I was still, anyway, so we went and we did our wardrobe and we looked marvelous. 
And then uh, we had this appointment to get, it's like a show and tell, they called it, the director, we had to yeah. do the audition. But the director was an interesting guy because he was Vietnamese, but he'd been raised in America as a war orphan. And he's back living in Vietnam now, you see. Yeah. And the reason why he was chosen is because Bruce Lee's sister is the executive director of the whole movie. Oh, my word. So she decides who does that the next thing, you know. And there's a whole Chinese contingent in this whole movie yeah. that she specially specified. Anyway, so the director absolutely loved us. Of course, it was just two guitars, John. I took I took some of my own percussion instruments, maracas, anything to look authentic. Yeah. Bongo drums. So John was playing the bongos. Uh, I was playing guitar and I was kind of um, conducting the other guy playing the guitar as well. Because yeah, yeah. you've got to get the rhythm right, otherwise the, the song slurs. You mm. know? Mm. Got a, it loses its, it's got a nice momentum. You know? mm. And he was playing guitar. And two guys were playing a trumpet, and with the trumpets, it sounded absolutely marvelous. You know, wow. in the And the director just loved us. He called somebody else from, he said, You've got to come and listen to this. Do you have so, recordings of that band? No, maybe they do, but we don't. Ah. And we, won't be, we, won't be, uh, we wouldn't be entitled to use it in there. Yeah. It doesn't really matter. Ah. Anyway, we had, and we spent five days on set. Everybody was well paid, ah. and well paid and well fed. Awesome. And it was lovely, you know. Wow. So that was, and it was the very end of the season. I had done no film work the rest of the season. So there you, So it was a life saver. Yeah, yeah. So there you, the people can take another feather is never say no. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Especially the Afrikaans one. <laughs> Just make it work. Yeah. Tell me, uh, another thing that struck me is candles. Yes. What do you do with candles? I just, uh, it's just one of my hobbies. I just like making candles. I kind of, I hate I had to see the, the wax go wasted, you know. Okay. So I used to, I made candles when I was about 16. I just did it for a matric for a while and I kind of liked it. I never made them since then. And then one day I used to have a courier business. Yeah. And I was, we were playing a gig at um, Dorf Street Theatre, the new one that was on the farm just outside of Yes, 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 yes. And so I went in there and I saw... They had a box of, they just tidied up the, it was in the day, they just tidied up the tables or something. It was this box full of candles that were, you know, that you could see they were kind of burnt out. Mm. And I said to uh, Valiant Swart's sister, I said, listen, uh, I see you've got a whole lot of candles, don't you Michelle. want to? Yeah, yeah. Michelle. Yeah. Nolte, yeah. So I said to her, don't you want me to make you, you know, like one or two or three nice big candles from all this wax that you got, you know, because wax is quite expensive if you do yeah. it like that. She said, listen, we were going to do it ourselves, but she says, to tell you the truth, we got enough on our chest. She says, take it, you can even have it if you like. Yeah. So I took it home, and um, I, there was one of, her, one of her candle holders was a round kind of a thing. So I made her a nice round candle to go in there, and I made her a whole lot of others. And uh, I, the bug kind of bit again. So then mm. I started making candles, and of course I started experimenting in Awesome. The more mistakes I made, the interest, more interesting. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's the, yeah, that's the thing. I think in all my time, I made one dud. Yeah. You know? That didn't work out. Yeah, that yeah. just looked ugly. I couldn't stand okay. it. Yeah. So, that's awesome. So, most of them ended up working out. Yeah, and I gave most of them away anyway. Yeah. Um, now, I want to know, talking bands again, mm. uh, you, when we were... Standing in the kitchen earlier, you mentioned Dale Collins. Uh, what other artists and musicians you've played harp or percussion or whatever with, uh, if you can think of? Oh, I'll tell you. I'll years. tell you how I started playing harp. When I, when I moved to P to open the club, there, yes, I told you about this supper club that we had called Valentinos. Yeah. Um, you know, like you, you're not you can't be open every night, so you open Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, and mm -hmm. maybe on a Monday in holiday season. You know, like that. So the rest of the time, 
uh, what's it, I wouldn't call it free time, but it's nice to do something. And you can't go far away because you've got to be back in PE to, to run the club, you see. Mm. And there was also maintenance and stuff that we had to do. So you kind of, and you know, you got to stay current, so you've got to buy new albums and so on. Anyway, and I've always fancied playing the music thing. So I, there was a pub that used to have a, a special at the, at the time, this is 1986, um, Ford had just left PE the, the, the year before. And the whole city was depressed because there were so many people that worked for Ford, you know, so now that all these people are unemployed. Oh, you know? shit. I mean, a lot of them left and went to, to Brits where they opened the new factory, but a lot of PE people said, we're not living PE. Mm. So they, it was, you know, the whole town was a bit down and out. Anyway, so what happened was uh, we opened this club. And so now we, we're getting the feel of the town. So we end up at this, there's a pub in one of the side streets. It's called the Stage Door. And uh, we went to this pub, and they always have a, in those days, those are, those are the circuits, so they'd have a solo musician playing there, maybe a duo. And we'd go there, and, and like on a Tuesday night, they had a special, you get fish and chips if you buy a beer, a draft beer. So I don't drink. Yeah. So I buy my friend two draft beers, and we buy two draft beers, and he has fish and chips, and I have fish and chips, and he has beers, you know, like that. Anyway, so there's a musician playing, and I just got to be in my bonnet, I said, jeez, and he's playing solo. Uh, you know, like this other nights when you go there when it's kind of empty, you know. Mm. So I went and I spoke to him. I said, listen, man, I'm a harmonica player. I'm not a marvelous harmonica player, but I'm a harmonica player nevertheless. And I play the blues. Mm. And uh, I'd like you to come and play with me one night, you know. So he says, yeah, I'll come when it's empty, like on Thursday or something, you know. So I said, no problem. <laughs> so I went. <laughs> come when it's empty. No. <laughs> Otherwise, you know, all these clients are there and you chase them away, you know what I mean, if you're playing because you, you must remember yeah. tell you the interesting thing about a harmonica it can almost fit it in your pants pocket it's so small uh, so what happens is you get a lot of people that have a harmonica but they're not musical at all uh, so they all have a harmonica while you're playing and they start playing but they're playing false shit. but they don't know it they might have a bit of rhythm which is fine but they're playing false yeah. they don't know it and they also don't understand how the keys work and if you're playing cross harp what you got to do they you yeah, so it's, it's actually quite rude but anyway uh, so now musicians know this a flute player is the second worst because a flute you can you know you can get in yeah. anywhere. but or a penny whistle player but a, but a harmonica plays the absolute nightmare for those guys so he said okay you can play one or two songs come on whatever you know so i said to my friend dear let's go so we went and i took my i had two or three halves at the time i didn't have a big selection mm -hmm. so i took it with i said these are the keys that i've got i don't know so i suggested one or two songs one of them was a song called man and Berg by dollar brand mm -hmm. uh he changed his name to something else after that uh, anyway and uh, so he'd play saxophone and I'd play harmonica and we had a great time. And there were a couple nice. of songs he used to play. And of course he did a couple of blues songs and I played along and he liked it. And he said, you can come anytime you like, you see. So I used to go there like maybe once a week or whatever, you know. Just, I didn't play the whole night with him, but a couple of songs that just lifts the gig, you know. Mm. Like say, you know. Anyway, then he, being on the circuit, he moved back to Cape Town. So uh, after a couple of years uh, of being in P, um, I sort of played other places as well because now you get to know other musicians. You know, they had a place there where all the musicians used to get together on a, on a Sunday night, the guys that were on the circuit. And they'd all jam, so I got to play there as well. A place called It's Country. Anyway, Andy came back to, to Cape Town, Andy Murray, and um, so I moved back to Cape Town in 1990. And uh, so I looked him up, and I, he was playing at a, at a place called Naughty's in Rondebosch. So I used to go there like on a Friday night and play with him at Naughty's, you see, and eventually. That kind of evolved, and then I was playing with a guy by the name of Patrick Ganoli, I'd go as a guest with his band in Goodwood, 
Patrick Kenobi. Patrick Kenobi, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Couple he's, of guest spots with uh, him. He's guest sky? That's right. Yeah, yeah. My, my friend Dean Cachet uh, played, played with him. Okay. Yeah. Okay. okay. Anyway, and um, I played, then I met a guy at a birthday party, Dale Collins. I met yes. Dale Collins at a birthday party. One of my friends, the architect uh, uh, in Santa Bosch, James Basson, he phoned me up on Saturday night. He said, listen, man. He said, there's a musician at this party, man. We at so-and-so's house in Belleville at such and such a place. There's this musician that I was at school with, man. Why don't you bring your harmonicas and you two can play for us, man? <laughs> so I said, really? He said, I said, look at the time. He says, no, it doesn't matter. So I went. Got in my car, I went. So, of course, I met Dale Collins. Yeah. And him and I started playing together and chatting and something. And I just, we didn't play a lot, just a little bit, you yeah. know, because we don't want to take over the party. Yeah. Dale said he was playing with a, with a, with a trio. A place called the Drunken Duck in Stickland. Yeah. And uh, he said, You must come here. And I says, oh, We play there on a Thursday night. So he says, Come on a Thursday night, you can we let you jam, you know. So that was that was in eighty what that ninety six. So early ninety seven I said, Okay, I'm gonna go this I'm gonna be resolute, I'm gonna go and play. So I went, you see, and I walked in and of course he hardly recognized me. Mm. So in the break I, I went over to him and I said, You know, how's it? You know, I'm so and so and you invited him to come and play some yeah. So now he, his face went pale because it's another harmonica player. <laughs> so I said pale because now he's got to tell these other two guys, the father and son team. They were called the Fleas. Yeah. That's what they were called. Wayne Paul and his father Dave, his father Dave Paul. Okay. He's got to tell them, you see. So Dave Paul, he says, okay, you can play one song kind of thing, you know. Mm. So I didn't have a, a, a microphone at the time, so they gave me a mic and they yeah. said, they told me what they're going to play. They're going to play this, that, and anything. I said, all right, cool. They start playing and I play with him. And straight away they liked me. They said, no, this is great. You can come and play anytime you like. Yeah. And that's how that started. And All right. Yeah, and there, was a, there was a guy that used to, a regular guy, a black guy that used to go to the pub. And he got, at the time, it was just after the, the election, mm. he got a job in Dula Omar's office, you know, the financial mm. guy, okay. the government. Yes. And he was leaving to go to Pretoria. And he told me his life story. Mm. And he was leaving, the next week was his farewell. The guy's name was Fafi. Yeah. So anyway, Based on his life story, I wrote a blues song, you know, like about the story of his life. Yeah, mm -hmm. awesome. And uh, I, I arrived on, on his farewell night and I said to Wayne, listen, Wayne, these are the let's, words. Let's jam it's, it. it's a blues song. This is, the, this is the feel of it, etc. And it's in such and such a key. Let's do it. Yo. So we played it for the guy the first time. Super special. We all signed it, you know, uh -huh. and gave it to him, the, the written song. And he he, uh, he framed it in his office in, in Parliament in, in Pretoria. How's that? Cool. Wow. That's special. <laughs> now, from that band, yeah. that, those three, they used to play at the Pizza Tavern in Tableview. Yes. This is now Dale Collins. That's right. Yeah. Dale Collins, uh, the Fleas, uh, Dave Pauly and Wayne Pauly. Yeah. They used to play at the Pizza Tavern in, in Tableview mm. um, as a trio, but normally it would only be the duo, the father and son. So they invited me to go on a Sunday night to the Pizza Tavern, and the Pizza Tavern was a very popular place. So of course I'd go, not every time I'd go occasionally. And this one night I was there and John, Dr. John, the singer from the Blues Blues was there. Yes. And uh, Graham Abbott, the drummer. The drummer, yes. Was there. He, he used to play with a band called, I don't remember now, Reflections. Yeah. Anyway, and uh, his girl, Graham's girlfriend is a waitress there. So anyway, the police said, come play, we're going to do some songs. So I played a song, then they said, we're going to invite John to sing, Dr. John. So he came and sang. So John was singing and I was playing harmonica and they were playing everything else. And it sounded quite cool, you see. So uh, afterwards, you know, John called me over to his table. He said, listen, he says, uh, the blues bruise is busy folding because the drummer was ill and he's, you know, he's terminally ill. And I need to start another band because that's what I want to do. Is this now Albert's dad? Albert's dad. Yes. 
Frank, Frank. Frank. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I need to start another band. And are you interested? I said, sure, I'm interested. He says, because I've spoken to the police and they want to be in on the band with me. Will you play harmonica? I said, sure, I'll play harmonica. Mm. So that was the core of it, you see. So that's how Boulevard started? That's how Boulevard started. Okay. Fire Dale Collins. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, and then we started, what happened was, we, uh, um, Wayne and his father were living in a flat in Kenilworth, mm. and Wayne was programming the, you know, the songs because they were a duo into, yes. the, into the sequencer. And I went to was with him one day. And so I'm tapping on the floor as he's playing back. Wayne says, don't tap. He says, you're not going to make a noise. I said, you've got to make a noise. You're a musician. Yeah. <laughs> so I walked next to his father. was watching TV in the lounge. I said, David, I said, listen, don't you, um, don't you want to share my house with me? Then we can make as much noise as we like because I've got a house all on my own, you know? Yeah. And uh, what had happened was my housemate had moved out. Mm. So now I've got space, you see. So David says, I'll give it some thought, you see. So they, him and Wayne and a friend of Wayne's came in the week to have a look. They walked in, Wayne saw a picture of um, uh, uh, U2, what's his name? You know yeah. the YouTube band? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a poster of YouTube band in my, in my lounge. Yeah. Wayne said, we, we live here. It's fine. That's the right poster. <laughs> and the other guy, Gavin, he took... Poster of Bonner. Yeah. Yeah. And he said... I'm happy. No, Sting. And then the, the other one is a picture of Sting and he said, okay. okay, I'm happy. That's it. I promise you. And that's how it's <laughs> Crazy. And tell me, uh, do you have any connection with Rob Thompson? Yes, Rob Thompson is a friend of mine in PE. What happened was in 2013, he was living in Cape Town. Yeah. He came to Cape Town to see if he could sort of launch his music career down here. But at the time, it was very quiet. Yeah. Uh, music in Cape Town. So it was, you know, it was a bit awkward. So he said to me, no, he says he's battling. I met him at the Mercury Lounge one night. Mm. So I said, well, look, I'm better. Let's start a duo together, you and I. Mm. I'm better connected than you. Not that I'm that well connected. Yeah. But, but uh, at least I'm, I'm better off than you. And I'll see if I can organize this again. Mm. What? So what you do? Oh, excuse me. <laughs> we started practicing. Uh. And uh, basically his repertoire. I was playing cajon and harmonica and doing backing vocals. Uh. And a lot of the stuff that he plays I knew anyway. Mm. And... Uh, Started practicing, and then I got us a gig at the house, the indoor market. Uh, what's it called? What's it called? The Bay Harbor Market. Got, uh-huh. us a, got us a gig there, or like on a Saturday morning, or a Saturday, Saturday afternoon, it's from about one o'clock to four o'clock. And what you do is you sit on a stage there, it's sponsored by KWV. <coughs> you sit on a stage there that they have, it's quite in a prominent place. They've got PA, a sound system, and everything. You just basically plug in and play. Nice. And then we played him and I. And uh, sometimes we'd have a bass player guest with us and so on. Mm. And then uh, after probably about nine months or so, Rob went back to PE because he wasn't making it yet. It was uh. for him. He went back to Paul Elizabeth because he's very well connected there. Mm. So I just continued the band. The, the, the Bay Harbor Market asked me if the, the black, because we called the band the Black Hats, if the Black Hats can play there some more. I said, sure. So I just got Wayne to play with me. Oh, uh, cool. And then we awesome. just came down as normal. So now it's a, there's a Black Hats Cape Town and a Black Hats P because I was in P recently and I played with him there. Oh. So is Rob Thompson still doing his music in He's in still P. doing it. Yeah, and he does okay. well. He's, he's oh, nice and cool. busy. Awesome. So I'll play with him there. Okay. Um, talking people, I want to move to a few other people that I'm... Names that I saw that I was interested how you how you know them. Uh, Lenny Miskin. Oh, Lenny Miskin. Lenny Miskin had a, had a friend, a Danny Gallagher, who'd been a drummer with a band called Factory. Mm-hmm. And he was quite a good drummer. And when we first started the band, we, st- we used to play at a place called Castle of Mar in Tableview. Yeah. And we used to, on a Sunday night, and we used to get a, 
a lot of musicians that used to come to that gig because we used to let them play. And Danny Gallagher was a nice drummer, and so we used to let him play. And he always came with Ian Miskin. Yeah. And uh, so they were together. They were like inseparable. And then somewhere along the way, Danny Gallagher, because he's actually Scottish, he moved back to Scotland because his mother, his mother had passed away and so on. So he moved back to Scotland, to family and so on there. And uh, Len Miskin kind of left, stayed behind. Mm. So uh, we were all friends with Len Miskin. And somewhere along the way, um, he was keen to, to learn to play the cajon, you know, because he bought one. So I said, yo, come to my house. He came to my house and I showed him the techniques and, you know, do this, do that, do the next thing. Just threw off me. <laughs> and uh, got him going, you know. Yeah. And then one night we were at a soiree at somebody's house in Plumstead. And uh, Tim Parr was there and oh, uh, cool. was a bass player and, uh, you know, like that, just guys playing. Yeah. And there was a cajon there that, uh, that uh, somebody brought and I took my own cajon. So uh, I was playing cajon with him happily and then Len said, yeah, he was there. So I said, don't you want to play cajon? Uh, get off. He says, no, 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 no. He says, no, I don't want to play. I'm, I'm too... I don't have the conference. I said, I'll tell you what. Here's another cajon. You play that cajon. Yeah. I'll play this one. Yeah, yeah. <coughs> and then you just play it. And you just get it because he never played a gig in his life. Uh. He just got the feel of it. And while he was playing, I got up and left. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> and then got him going. Got him, awesome. Just got him going, you know. Good on you, man. Yeah. That's, that's great. So he's, been, he's playing in the band ever since. Oh, uh, cool. Yeah. What's his borderline? Is his project? Is his, is his project. Yeah, yeah. Tell me uh, best and worst gigs in your life. Start with a with the good news if you want. The best the best gig that I've ever the most sort of exhilarating gig I've ever played in my life was at Kirstenbosch Gardens to seven thousand people Woo. the day that we launched our CD. Jeez, with Boulevard. With Boulevard. Yeah. Our, it was our very first CD, it was in two thousand and what was it, yeah, must have been around that time. Either two thousand I think it was two thousand and four. Yeah. So it was wow. the beginning of two thousand and five. And we launched our CD. And um, there were 7,000 people there. Jeez. And Dale Collins had borrowed money from the bank to pay for the, for the production of the CD, you see. Yeah. Because so, he had a real job. He could borrow money. Where did you record that CD? We recorded in Lionel Jordan's studio in, in um, uh, Observatory. Okay. Okay. Anyway, so uh, we had a lot of our friends and their children on selling the CDs amongst the crowd. Yeah. So anyway... <coughs> the place was packed. It was wonderful. And we played to this crowd. And while we were playing, the people were selling CDs to the people. And we made, in one day, we made, what? We sold 140 CDs. Yes! But tell me, Greg, how the hell did you get that gig that big? Like, how did you get 7,000 people? I'll tell you what it is. It's, you see, Apple ties it with, the, I don't know if they're still on, but they were the sponsors of it. Yeah. So that the, the, it's the, the Christenbosch, it's got a name, you know, like Sunday Sessions or, you know, something like that. On yeah. the Lawn or something like that. It's, yeah. You know, it's got a name. So that's actually quite a known thing. So people oh, in know. If you want to do something on a nice summer's afternoon yeah. uh, in Christenbosch, you can go and sit and you can listen to live music. Yeah, so, it's, so it was, back in the day, it was already part of the Summer Sunset concert. That's so. probably that. Ah, it's probably okay. that. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so no, that was part sense. of it. So basically, everybody that goes there knows that they're not going to get uh, um, inferior music. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you basically guaranteed a good crowd. However, the second time we played there, the weather was bad. Mm. So the crowd was very depleted. Mm. 
and so of course they never hired us again. Oi. You know, it's just what that was. It's so like. shit when things like that happen. It's not it's your fault. Something though. out of your control. Yeah. Uh, f- uh, f- cause that the venue don't hire you. Again, yeah. You know. Yes, that sucks. It's one of those things. Um, the other big things. Did you? Did you guys? Did you ever play overseas with Boulevard? Yes, we went in 2010. We toured Holland. Yeah. Uh, in Belgium, we played uh, 13 gigs there. Yeah. We played, uh, just let me think, I think we played two gigs in Belgium. Let me think. Maybe one. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah we, Holland and Belgium. and. Yeah, I'll tell you what happened. A, a friend of the band, a Dutch guy, who yeah. had a house in Paul, he just, he loved this band. You, the Dutch love blues. He loved mm. this band. He said, I've got to show, got to take this band to Holland, you know? Mm. So what he did was he went to Holland. He's got a lot of, he's a businessman. He's got a lot of business friends. He said, he made, he took 12 people uh, including himself and everyone con- contributed a thousand euros sure for the buddy so that's twelve thousand euros which at the time it was seven to one yeah. no so seven twelves and someone's eh? yeah. uh, uh, yeah. anyway, like that. Um, that so eighty four eh eighty four thousand yeah anyway something like that the calculating the fifty one from the sixty eight to the two thousand and ninety <laughs> I'm like wow good quick on that yeah no you know why because it's cool when we had to do mental arithmetic if you didn't know the answer you got caned uh, <laughs> no what happens is it warms up your, it's good for your blood circulation it warms ah, up your blood okay and it's just warm enough to melt the, the wax in your ears <laughs> and you quickly come up with answers <laughs> <No>. anyway <laughs> so uh, what was I telling you about the, 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 uh, the, the okay. Dutch tour yeah. so what happened was they had this budget so uh, they said okay fine what we'll do is we'll pay for your flight and out of the budget uh, there's, a, there's an apartment in a town called Geertredenberg Mm-hmm. which is near the city of Breda, which is southern Holland, yeah. near, near the Belgian border. Um, there's a, an apartment there. Most of your sponsors live in Gertredenberg, you know. Mm. And there's an apartment there that we'll hire. Uh, and that costs 5,000 rand for three weeks, which was bad. And uh, you guys can stay there. And from there, you can play your gigs. So our Dutch friends organized us 13 uh, gigs cool. there, which for me is a major feat. Because I mean, you... None of them are in the music business. They just yeah. did it, you know, like yeah. just like that. They all paid, and of course, uh, they all supported us because now they spent good money on a band that they've never heard in their life before, yeah. and they wanted to hear, you know, what it was about. So they were all great fans. They really loved it. They were very proud that they paid for it, mm-hmm. and it was really nice for us because we had a place to stay. All of us stayed in the house. Yeah. Um, we had extra people that came with us. Uh, John's oh, wife, cool. she came with us. Uh, a friend of Graham's, the drummer, uh, a guy by the name of Derek, he also came. But he came on his own steam, but later on, you know, and he stayed yeah. with us. Like, um, that sounds uh, like a jaw. Yeah, wow. a lady friend of Ari's pitch. She, I don't know if she stayed with us, but she was there for a day or two. Okay. And uh, so it was really nice. It was really okay. nice. So you took your sound guy as well? We took our sound guy. Nice. Let me tell you something. Arita Blanche was a great sound guy. Because, you know, in Holland, they have they have mixing discs yeah. that, are, that are as big as this couch. You know what I mean? Yeah. There's no small mixing desk. Yeah, yeah. And Ari would walk in. We played two festivals. We played one in Dordrecht. And we played one in a place called Eindhoven, which was called Blues Plain, Eindhoven. Anyway, and Ari would walk into the, normally the, the sound desk is under a, like a tarpaulin because you never know when it's going to rain in all that. Because uh. it snows in winter, rains in summer, you know. So anyway, Ari would walk in this, we'd hear the band before us playing, you know, and it sounds marvelous and it's a good band and so on. Mm. And then Ari gets in and he, and he fiddles the sound desk and we do a quick sound check and he says, go, and we play. And then we play our set. And then after that, we pack up and leave. And then you hear the next band that's playing on Ari's settings. Uh, and it sounded 
vastly different to the first yeah. one. You know, like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he, he was invaluable. Oh, it's, it's, yeah, it's about knowing the dynamics of your bands, of your band, and the yeah, players, the individual yeah. dynamics, no, he's all really of that. Um, okay, and, and worst gig? Oh, worst gig I ever played. Funny enough, uh, it's, uh, it's kind of hard to say. But uh, it's, it's a difficult thing to say because it's, it's, in a way it's not true. We yeah. played at Dolph Street Theatre. Mm. It was a winter's night and it was the Dolph Street Theatre in Dolph Street. Mm. You know what I mean? Yes, Street. those days. Yeah. 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 And we were relatively unknown. It was in about 2000 and... Before 2006. Mm. Still making headway. Sort of, you know. Mm. It might have been even 2002, 2003. Yeah. We played, and Dale Collins was playing with us. Mm. So that was before 2006. Anyway, and um, there were eight people in the gig. Oh my word. You know? I know those. And it was, <laughs> this is the gig where you take the door, but you don't actually take the door because it's worth more than that you're going to get paid. So you have to leave the door behind, but you take the proverbial door. <laughs> you know? So anyway, so... Me, I play music. I don't, you know what I mean? I, yeah. If you're a musician, you don't have people, you don't have anything. Mm. You know what I mean? So I thought, well, the only thing to do is just play your lungs out. So I yeah. closed my eyes and I played like I always played. Mm. From my heart, I gave it everything I had. At the time, we had a, a different bass player who was complaining that the place was so empty. Mm. The eight people were there. We played the gig. We got enough money to, for our petrol that day. Yeah. You know what I mean? To get home. And uh, that was it. But, you know? Mm. And I thought, oh, just, yeah. Such a shame. Anyway, turns out that about a month and a half later, one of the people that was at the gig phoned Dale and said, Dale, we really love that band. Yeah, we, you see. We, 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 we have a, a shop that we're going to open a, a, a branch of in Cape Town. We're really nice and we're going to open a branch of it in Cape Town. Mm. We would really like your band to play at the opening. Mm. Uh, we'll, pay, we'll pay you, at the time there were six guys in the band, we'll pay mm. you 6,000 rand. And at the time, that was three times what we, we normally got for gig. Yeah, yeah. That was corporate money. Uh, so, you see so it wasn't really the worst gig. Never, never say, like, uh, never have the attitude of, oh, here's not a lot of people, like, oh, uh, this is a this practice. Is, this is going to suck. Uh, this yeah. is only a practice. Like, always yeah, play yeah. your heart out because you never know. There could be that yeah. one corporate guy. That That's right. It's exactly what happened. So on that note, I want to ask you, yeah. uh, Greg, is there anything that you feel that I've left out? Anything that you'd like to add? Just about the music that our band played that was original. Uh, initially, um, Dale Collins wrote, I think he wrote three songs that we played on our, on our first, uh, some of them on our first two albums. For Boulevard Blues. For Boulevard Blues, yeah. yeah. The one's called Something in My Eye. I'll recognize them if I hear them. Yeah. And Richard wrote one or two. One of the ones that Richard wrote was called um, uh, Blues at uh, Midnight. What? Mm. Something like that. It's a brilliant blues song. 6 8. It's written in 6 8. Oh. Uh, yeah. And then the band itself, we wrote a song. We got the idea from a guy by the name of Hank Bax, who's also a musician. Mm. Um, it was a song called Dr. John. And he gave oh, us the no idea word. of the riff. Yeah. It's just all about Dr. John. And uh, I wrote I, I wrote the bass bass riff, riff for that. Mm. I wrote the, the bass riff signature, and, yeah. And I, I told the bass player play that, and I played it exactly the same thing on, on harmonica, but just in a different key. John sang the song and so on. So we did that, and uh, I think, and then Richard had one more composition. I think he did two compositions all in all. But um, 
they the ones um, that we did. And then there was a there was a radio station. There is a radio station called Zone Radio. Yeah. And they had one of our songs called um, Judge Can't Judge a Book by its Cover. Ah. Uh, they they put that uh, up in a competition. Uh, uh, you know, like with the original version and other versions to see which was the best. And our band won. <laughs> like oh, international, wow. not over the internet, so yeah. they liked our version. You know? Awesome. On that note, yeah. I must say thank you, Greg. You yeah. are a true storyteller. Yes. Thank you for all the great stories and thank memorabilia. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it. Thanks. Een lekker lijvige gesprek met die percussionist en harmonica player van die Boulevard Blues Band, Greg Smith. Richard Pryor, die gitarist van die band, was ook al op Tunes Live geweest. Dit is my so waar van, van die ouwer garde, die meer senior burgers, soos dan nou Greg Smith wat op hierdie show is, dat dit is bitter moeilik om hulle hele leven in te pas. Ek meen, selfs met die ou van ouderdom 29 bijvoorbeeld, is dit baie moeilik as hy al klomp en devers in sy music en sy loopbaan aangepak het, is dit bitter moeilik om, om alles te cover, maar juist dit voel net vir my dat die mens verseker deel 2 en selfs deel 3 met iemand soos Greg kan doen, vooral uh, iemand soos hy wat, wat lekker stories vertel en hou van stories vertel en baie stories het ook om te vertel en sy geheer is so goed, dit is ongelooflik hoe hy goeders onthou, hoe hy berekeninge, blitsig straatwiskundige berekeninge maak, um, Ek meen, ons allemaal weet, die brein begin ons maar bykie te verstadig na, na meer senior ouderdom toe, maar like my Greg uh, het nog nie die vers, verlangsaamheid uh, gekry in sy, in sy brein sy activiteite nie. So, as daar, as daar enigszins van my gaste is, wat ek nou, my punt wat ek wil maak, wat jylle voel, deel 2, jy weet, ek wil nie sê kwalificeer nie, maar wat, wat wat jylle voel moet inkom vir deel 2. Mail my by info at tunestudio.co.za uh, Laat my weet wie sal jy nog van wil hoor, wie moet ek terugkry op die show. Dit sal lekker wees om nou om, om te hoor waar le die preferences, waar, waar is daar nog pitkos om te ontgin of padkos. Alright jylle, thanks dat jylle luister, kontak uh, ons geris met enige voorstelle, enige queries oor tunes self, enige iets music related, kontak ons op Facebook, op Twitter, op Instagram, wel volg ons op Instagram, uh, ja, e-mail, self cellfoon, as jy dit het, oor en uit, cheers.